This episode of the Getting Smart Podcast is part of our new Pathways campaign. What is something you used to think that you've changed your mind about? It's time for us to do that with all things learning. Previous Getting Smart campaigns have laid the groundwork of networks, place, purpose, and innovation. Our latest effort, the new Pathways campaign, will serve as a catalyst for unbundling education to allow for new learning models that are sustained by support and guidance and embedded in scalable systems. In partnership with ASA, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Stand Together, and the Walton Foundation, the new Pathways campaign will question education status quo and propose new methods of giving students a chance to experience success in What's Next. Find out more at gettingsmart.com backslash new pathways. Community colleges are America's hidden economic engine. Uh, According to Bob Schwartz and the Harvard Project on Workforce, I'm Tom Vanderark, and you're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. Today, we're talking about pathways to opportunity, and in particular, the role that community colleges play. Um, Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tom. Happy to be here. Uh, Bob, I want to do a quick tomologue here and a a trip to the Wayback Machine. as I was thinking about our conversation, um, I thought about the last 30 years and the times that we've intersected. Um, so about 30 years ago, I became a public school superintendent. And around the same time, you joined, uh, you, you had been leading uh, grant making at Pew, and then you joined the faculty at the Harvard Graduate School. And then you had been helping to organize uh, Achieve, which was this amazing uh, bipartisan collection of governors and corporate leaders that that really anchored um, bipartisan consensus around uh, education reform. And a, a few years later, um, when we were forming the, the Gates Foundation, I think your work and and the early platform at the Gates Foundation really helped create some consensus, practice political and and philanthropic consensus around all kids college ready. Uh, Some leading districts and networks turned that into all kids should go to college. And and from, um, you know, over the next 25 years, we saw with a real focus on high schools, steady improvement in graduation rates, increased number of students um, heading to college, particularly heading to four-year colleges. Uh, I, last night, I looked up some stats that immediate college-going rates went up from about 60% to over 70% in the last 20 years. Um, but this didn't all end well. That. In the meantime, uh, states kind of pulled back from investment in college, college costs went up, student debt went up, more kids were attempting college, but uh, not finishing college. We had the new um, sort of worst case scenario of debt without degree. Um, and then I think around 2018, America really called BS on, on college. Um, a recent Gallup poll said, um, confidence in higher ed has declined by more than 20 points um, in the last few years. And on top of that, we've had big changes in the job market, um, 
where technical skills and work experiences matter more than ever. How do community colleges fit into this? Where did the recent interest in community colleges come from? And are they really um, the, this hidden gem of uh, economic progress? Let me go back to 2011, which is when I and two colleagues at Harvard, uh, economist Ron Ferguson and a visiting journalist named Bill Simons, started to meet to work on what became the Pathways to Prosperity Report in 1911, that we released in the spring of 1911. In that report, you know, we started out, the first thing I was curious to know was, did we still have a forgotten half? If you go back to the period where, you know, you and I were initially talking about, actually in the late 80s, when there was a blizzard of reports, one that always stayed with me was called the forgotten half. And the forgotten half at that point was the half of kids who did not go on to college. The government at that time was spending $10 for every kid who went to college as against, you know, against every kid who didn't go to college. And that, now this was a report that called for much more attention to the broad, you know, this, this broad range of, of, of kids who were not being served by, by colleges. Um, in any event, we started looking at the, at the attainment rate of 25-year-olds, and what really struck me was that here we were, you know, in 2011, you know, two decades into the standards movement. As you know, I was right in the middle of that movement as the head of Achieve. We were pushing hard with our states to, you know, to raise standards, develop aligned assessments, develop strategies for intervening when there's persistent poor performance. And you know, our notion at that point was not that everybody needed to go, to go on to college but that we needed to have a, a higher floor uh, of expectations, particularly around core academic subjects, so kids would have choices to, to make. Um, in any event, in that report, what we discovered was that 20 years into the standards movement, at that point, only 28% of 25-year-olds had a four-year degree. So, and then we added in and said, well, how many kids had a two-year degree as a terminal degree? That was about another 10%. How many young people had a post-secondary certificate that was robust enough to have some value in the labor market. We were looking at some of the Lumina data at that point. It was only about 5%. So the point is you add those numbers up, we are still below 50% in terms of, and so our, the big question that our report raised was, what's our strategy for the other half of kids uh, who for whatever set of reasons are not attaining a four-year degree by age 25? We, we, we asked kind of two other questions, really, uh, and, this, and this gets is particularly relevant to, the, to my more recent work. One was, what's going on on the labor market? Around that period, economists were basically saying to, to parents especially, we're moving into a world in which there are only going to be two kinds of jobs, high-wage, high-skill jobs requiring at least a four-year degree, and then everybody else is going to be consigned to low-skill, low-wage work. In other words, the middle is disappearing from the economy. As we started to talk to economists, we realized that this was not a foregone conclusion by any means. And there were people like Tony Carnavale at, at the Georgetown Center on Workforce and the Education who were arguing, no, there's going to continue to be a very significant chunk of middle-skill jobs. They're not going to be the traditional manufacturing jobs because those are clearly in significant decline, but in the service sector in particular, and in fields like IT and healthcare, transportation, logistics, et cetera, there are going to be lots of good jobs, especially technician-level jobs, for people who have pretty strong STEM skills, something beyond a high school diploma, but not necessarily a four-year degree. 
Uh, and so our question, yeah, so we were challenging that, that kind of uh, assumption. The third thing, and this gets to your, your, your allusion to uh, uh, in our pre-conversation about the, the report that my wife and I did about the Swiss vocational system. I'd had the opportunity, we both had had the opportunity for OECD to take a look at higher performing education and training systems around the world, in Asia and in Europe. And we realized that the, the U.S. had a lot to learn particularly from places like Switzerland and Germany and Denmark and other places that have made a much more significant investment in programs that really combine work and learning for the, in the case of Switzerland, 70% of young people move into these work and learning youth apprenticeship programs at the age of 15 or, or, or 16. And they come out the other end, you know, with broad generalizable skills not and, and some technical skills, but the ability to actually move in their labor market, depending on their interests and what, what, what changes take place. So all that's to say is that, um, again, as you know, uh, coming back to 2011, that Pathways report of ours got such take up out in the world. <laughs> it was a source of some controversy within the Beltway, but out in the world, we were overrun with speaking invitations. 50 invitations from 30 different organizations in 30 states and five countries in six months, which said to me, something I had hoped would happen anyway, that time to see if we can maybe start to work with a handful of states and see if we can help them figure out strategies to actually build these more robust pathways from high school through post-secondary to work. And as soon as you start talking about through post-secondary to work, you get to community colleges. And, you know, it's funny, when we started out our Pathways Network in 2012, we had a half a dozen states and that group kind of grew over time. But when we started, we did the typical thing that a lot of other organizations in this space were doing. We kind of started with high schools and then figured we could then seamlessly start to bring in community colleges. And, you know, guess what? That turned out to be really, really hard. But we had another really important building block, which you had a hell of a lot to do with which was the early college movement. And, you know, you know better than I, you turned at JFF right at the beginning of that movement and gave them resources to play this kind of coordinating intermediary kind of role, working with your grantees across the country to help build up, you know, networks of, 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 uh, of early college high schools. And I, as you might guess, I followed that movement pretty closely because my wife was the lead person at JFF on that work. And one of the things that was striking to me was that um, it was almost accidental that a relative handful of places picked, as they started to develop early high schools, at the same time had a career focus. I think Wake Tech, for example, in North Carolina, you know, built its program around preparing kids to work in the healthcare sector. But there were relatively few examples. Meanwhile, you know, you had these career academy programs moving along, but no, they had no connection to post-secondary. So in a sense, what we were trying to do is build off of the early college high school work and build off of the career academies work. But I, what we thought would differentiate us from the really good work going on in a lot of these uh, organizations around the country was our focus ultimately was on employment. We didn't view this as simply a way of engaging kids to get them and motivating them using careers as a kind of hook to get them through high school or on, you know, to just to four-year colleges. Our view was we needed to build 
as I say, pathways that ultimately would get them launched in careers in fields where there was high growth and high demand and where you could pretty quickly earn a good living without necessarily having a four-year degree. And our assumption was if we could get kids started and launched, they decided they needed more education that, you know, once they were working in a company, probably the company would help them go on and get it if that's what they needed. But so that was our, our overall framework. So what you ask, it's a long-winded way of asking, how do we get to community colleges? For me, at least, it was very much out of this recognition that if you really want to engage employers, community colleges are much, much better situated to do that than high schools. They kind of sit between high schools on the one side and employers on the other. The best of them are nimble. They're market-oriented. They can move quickly. So what led to this book, at least in my mind, really, that was one of the motives for me. The other, my wonderful colleague, Rachel Lipson, had done a big, her big culminating project when she was, a, she was getting a joint degree between the business school and the Kennedy School. She had Larry Summers, her advisor on one side, Joe Fuller from the business school on the other. And she did this really long paper on the Im impact of California's community colleges on economic mobility. So she came with this kind of economic mobility, kind of more economic focus, if you will. And I came more with the focus coming out of the, the career pathways work. So we got, you know, it's one of those accidental projects you'd appreciate as a, as a funder. Um, I had a conversation with a, with, with a funder and it started on a different topic and somehow he kind of gave me a little opening and I said, you know, I've had this thing I've really wanted to do. I was actually started planning this project before the pandemic. It was going to culminate in a big national achieve like meeting with employers and higher ed people and, and government people. Then the pandemic hit. I put that plan aside and, you know, casual conversation. Funder said, I'm interested, send me a quick proposal. So we got a couple of hundred thousand bucks, not a lot. We're in the middle of the pandemic. We, hit, we were on a very tight timeline. So we, we didn't go through any fancy, you know, scientific process for picking community colleges. Yes, we had a set of criteria and rubrics and we looked at data, but we really started talking to people who know more about that world than either of us really did. We, got, we started with maybe 20 schools on our list, narrowed the, you know, the field down to seven. We interviewed leadership teams from seven of these colleges, pick five based on regional diversity, diversity of industries, diversity of student population, but two common denominators. One was these are places, well, they, they really, they're kind of dual client places. They understood that in order to serve their first client students really well and to really help, you know, their orientation always was economic advancement. Anybody who shows up at our doorstep is there ultimately for economic advancement. And they realized in order to, to serve that population well, they just needed to build a really robust set of relationships with industry leaders. And over time to position themselves as kind of go-to players in their region's workforce and economic development ecosystem. So that was our orientation. And the, the, the thought was, you know, I don't know how, you know, reporters have asked me, you know, how, it's okay, so you pick these five. They're exemplars, right? They're not perfect. They're still working on things. But, but, yeah, my guess is we probably could have picked 50 colleges, that, but the point is there's a universe of about a thousand community colleges. And the challenge you know, is to what degree can you use these exemplars to kind of begin to shift the conversation, especially in states like my own and, and yours, I should say, Washington, where legislatures and business leaders and others have not tr traditionally looked to community colleges primarily 
as workforce uh, institutions. You know, they were set up primarily to provide a low cost first two years of a four year, you know, toward a four year degree. And unfortunately, as we know, that the numbers there are uh, not terrifically encouraging. The basic number I kind of carry around is 80% of young people who show up on the doorstep of a two year institution say they're there to get a four year degree. Six years later, fewer than 15%, 15% have succeeded in doing that. And there are lots of different reasons for that. This is not necessarily a knock on, on community colleges, but the point is that if that's the, your main reason for being, and if you're being funded to do that, you know, maybe you've got a bit of a problem on your hands in convincing legislatures to, to, to step up their funding. Community colleges, you know, in my mind, they serve the neediest students. 50% of Latino students in higher education start in community colleges. 40% of black students start in community colleges. They clearly are the highest need. They serve the highest need students in post-secondary education, and they are by far the least well-funded institutions. So, you know, part of our kind of implicit argument in this book is, hey, guys, in this field, if you really want to get better funded, you need to build political alliances, particularly with employers. And you need to be able to show them that you can help solve their talent pipeline problems. And if you get them on your side and have them making the case to legislatures and the governors as to why you need not only better funding, but different funding, um, funding that's much more focused on, on results, funding that differentiates, understands that there are different costs between starting three new sections of sociology or starting a mechatronics program. Um, use these cases that can begin that conversation. That at, at the outset, I, I suggested that this, this political consensus that began to form 25 years ago may have pushed too many kids towards four-year colleges. Um, you know, having culpability for that, it, it was a comfortable equity bargain, right? And I guess it was well-intentioned, but we, I don't think we had prepared our universities uh, to, to, uh, to be ready to help more kids succeed. We had, we had a lot of kids going to college not really well-prepared. And then you mentioned state of Washington. Um, a, a number of the community colleges here just became university prep. So they... They really calcified a number of the career-oriented programs. Um, what you point out in your in your book, uh, let me name your the book is America's Hidden Economic Engines: How Community Colleges Can Drive Shared Prosperity. What what I saw in common about your selection criteria is that you picked vibrant colleges that had a success formula that included these strong um, community, particularly employer partnerships. Is that fair? Yes, no, absolutely. And we were looking for places that went beyond the kind of individual, you know, one company and one program kind of partnership, but really, you know, we're working with the leading industry sectors in their region. They really kind of understood the economy they invested heavily in real-time labor market information. They built strong data systems, and they really listened well to employers. They, you know, they, they went way beyond the usual, you know, industry advisory committee, come and have lunch, and we'll tell you all the wonderful things we're doing, and you'll give us some advice, and we'll go on doing what we're doing. They genuinely went out and, you know, it's sector by sector in their region and said, what are your needs? And look at our programs 
and tell us, you know, what we need to do better. And if we need to build some new programs, let's do it collaboratively. Let's not let's not us try to be guessing, you know, what what you guys actually need and are looking for. Let, let's really figure this out together. And you know, these these relationships, obviously, you know, we pick people who, by and large, been in places place for quite a while. Um, uh, one of our five cases was a turnaround case, and that's Pima in, in Tucson. Lee Lambert had been there now a decade. He's now moving on, but he, you know, it was a major, major turnaround effort. Three of the other places had leaders who kind of grew up in their institutions and you know were, were kind of lifers, and and over time uh, built these relationships. And then the fifth, Ann Cress had done a great job at Monroe Community College, which had really become a poster child in a place where the old industry had disappeared, and she she and the college had to play a key role in building you know a new kind of helping the region develop a new kind of economy she then moved to nova northern virginia community college you know just outside of dc which had been primarily known as a great transfer place uh, it has a very robust partnership with george mason that was featured on the news hour not too long ago she saw that was great but that was not enough and we needed to build alongside that a different set of working relationships with the amazons of the world Let's try to distill the, uh, if there's a success formula that comes through in, in the book, um, my, my sense is that each one of these places, um, as you just described, have, have strong community relationships, particularly with employers, a dynamic career-connected programs. Um, based on those relationships, they have really strong student support systems. Yeah, I mean that one interesting thing to me was they've in in their different ways, they've all acknowledged that career services as it currently exists needs to be blown up. That is this notion of having four people sitting in an office somewhere on the campus that students seek out, you know, in the last semester that they're there for career advice, that that's just way, way, way too weak an intervention. So they typically both try to um build, as I say, real-time labor market information into all of their programs. They take, at their best, they start right at the beginning. When students walk in the door, they get them focused on what are your goals when you're exiting here, whether you're here for a 16-week program as an adult who's been thrown out of work and is coming back for an expanded set of skills, or whether you're you know, an 18 or 19-year-old. Um, and so that they really don't leave it the chance that students will get early up-to-date information on the labor market so they have an understanding as they're selecting majors of what kinds of opportunities those majors lead to. It doesn't mean that all students are going to say, well, that's all I care about. But the point is, at least that information gets built into their transfer programs as well as their more kind of terminal career um, programs. And it's the other thing is that they've all blown up the, the line that traditionally has separated credit from non-credit. As I'm sure you know, in a lot of places, non-credit is part of continuing education. It's not funded by the institution. It's either funded by the fees that students pay or it's funded by kind of short-term contracts with employers that may say, you know, I've got 60 incumbent workers who need upskilling in this new technology for 60 days and we'll pay the, you know, the community college to do that. Those relationships don't really add up to anything. <laughs> And I, to me, one of the most interesting decisions that any of our presidents made was the one that Lee Lambert made when he arrived at Pima a decade ago and said, if, if workforce development is really as core to our mission as I think it needs to be, goddammit, we're going to fund it ourselves. And um, P, 
Pima now has 100 people on that side of the organization, and 30 of whom are in units that are employer-facing. And, you know, I, I went out to Pima. We had a little money left over at the end of the project, and so Rachel and I decided we'll do two videos. She went out to Lorraine um, in, uh, you know, outside of Cleveland, and I went to Tucson, and, and we put together these two short videos. And we interviewed both people on the campus and people in the community, mostly mostly employers. And at Pima, the, the, the number two guy on the region's economic development um, organization called Sun Carter Inc., 60 CEOs were his board. And he said, you know, we, we, you know, he, his, he's responsible for new business development. And he said, we don't have an important meeting with a company without somebody from Pima being in the room. Because the questions they want answered really have to do with where we're going to get, you know, a skilled workforce. And he said, that, you know, we, we, we have the University of Arizona here. It's a, it's a really good, you know, research university. But he said, now, don't, don't use this in, your, in the clip. But, you know, they're a research university. They don't know how to move quickly on anything, you know. And, uh, you know, Pima is very responsive. And, you know, we just, we just as I, we don't do anything without them. Um, and that's the, you know, that, that's what you hope community colleges can become in, in, in their regions. Um, you know, Pima's a big place. Uh, and, you know, it, it, the, we deliberately picked a couple of large places, but we also, Lorraine and Mississippi Gulf Coast are much more typical. They're in the sort of 10 to 13, 10 to 15,000 student range. They're not 30,000 the way, uh, you know, Pima is. So. Uh, Work-based learning, it, it strikes me that um, that's becoming more important than ever. Uh, was that a theme at, at, at any of these um, colleges? Pima is putting a stake in the ground, saying every student is going to get a work-based learning experience here. They've, they've put that, that stake in the ground. And I know a couple of other community colleges not in this network, um, Delaware Tech, for example, in Delaware. Uh, the, the, the same thing. Um, you know, c- coming back to a, a point you made at the beginning, I think for, there a lot of factors, I think, are now at play that I think help explain why our book kind of struck a nerve and got, and got a lot of attention pretty quickly. It was only published a month ago, and, it's, and we've already gotten a lot, of, a lot of coverage. And I think, you know, there is this increasing movement towards skill-based hiring, it's not yet a you know a huge movement, but the point is you've got some big companies. I mean, IBM, in the space of five years, has moved from 90% of its jobs postings requiring four-year degrees down to 50%, and it's building its own kind of in, in, in-house apprenticeship programs. You've got now have 12 governors who have, with a wave of the pen, said you know we're going to open up state hiring to um, you know 90% of jobs in the case of Maryland to folks without four-year degrees. Um, and you've got, as you said at the outset, all the recent polling tells us there is this growing kind of disaffection among parents and increasingly among young people as well. Is it really clear that I need a four-year degree? Do I really want to go into debt? Are the returns really guaranteed that we, uh, the way we used to think of them? One, another data point that I use a lot is that pre-pandemic, 40% of 25-year-olds without four-year degrees we're really working in jobs that didn't really require a four-year degree. Post-pandemic, that's, that, that percentage is barely budged. Um, to me, that says a lot more about our failure to 
persuade four-year colleges and universities why they need to pay more attention to careers and career development and career exposure, internships, work-based learning. I still don't understand why more of them have not picked up on the Northeastern's co-op model, for example, or some of the other smaller work and learning colleges. I mean, I really do think that, that um, you know, four-year institutions, you know, not the elite ones, but the mass, you know, four-year regionals are going to continue to see, going to have enrollment problems if they don't address this very understandable concern on the part of parents. Is my kid going to go out the door better positioned to get started in a, you know, in a career that's going to lead to a middle-class wage than he or she would have been absent or spending this money or, 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 or going into debt? The other thing that's interesting to me, by the way, and that you will be, you'll be interested in this to know because it says a lot. A main reason that community colleges are now, their, their enrollments have stabilized after taking a big hit in the first two years of the pandemic is the growth of, of, of dual enrollment uh, and early college. Um, Marsha Ballinger at Lorraine, who's you know, just a really smart, experienced, knowledgeable leader, uh, said to me you know, fairly recently, she said, you know, we all have to wake up. 84% of our students are coming in through the side door, meaning they're not the traditional students. They're either, you know, high school students uh, or they're adults, you know, coming in for reskilling for shorter term kind of programs. And we're just, you know, our institutions, we're just not organized to deal effectively with either of these two populations. Um, so that's, that's a big challenge for this. And, but as my real point is that's a real opportunity as well. Once the barriers come down around four-year degrees and there's more attention to skills and there's more attention to experience, and that's where the work-based learning is so important. Employers, the first question employers ask these days is, let me see your resume. What's been your work experience? If you graduate from a four-year college and you don't have a resume with work experience and you don't happen to go to an elite institution, you know, you're screwed. You know, really, you're, you're not a hell of a lot better than, you know, you're certainly not a lot better than somebody coming out of a two-year college with work experience and a resume in a field where there are real you know, growth opportunities. Bob, I, I want to I wrap things up um, with an equity question. Um, at the outset, I, I alluded to the, the fact that the first 20 years uh, of my career were anchored around this equity uh, vision of all kids college ready. And that was the easiest and most powerful way I could express um, my equity impulse. And, and I wonder today how we can and should describe a, an equity-focused goal. If, if the outcome is not to send every kid to a four-year college, some ought to go to a two-year, some ought to go into an apprenticeship model. How do we express... Uh, a workforce goal or even advise a, a young person equitably, um, but in this more nuanced way? So I've been working on two projects for the last two or three years at the Harvard Project on Workforce. This community college one is number one. And I should say, by the way, while I'm thinking of it, in addition to the case studies, we had there was a second part of, our, of the project. We invited leadership, cross-sector leadership teams from six states to come to a day-long virtual convening. We were still in, in the pandemic. This was in, in last June, June, June 28th, 2022. 
where in the morning, I moderated a panel discussion with the five case study college presidents. And, in, and we sent these teams draft cases uh, at that point. In the afternoon, each of the state teams met, and we also had a bunch of national participants that they met as a separate group, but, the, but each of the six state teams met to basically say, okay, we've heard these presidents, we've read these draft cases. If we would like our community colleges to begin to look more like these five or any one of these five, what would it take? And those states were California, Colorado, Connecticut, Massachusetts, um, New Jersey, and Minnesota. Um, in Massachusetts, because it's our home state, the person we asked to put together this team happened to be the guy who was the head of the Massachusetts Competitive Partnership organization representing his board, 18 of the CEOs of eight of the very largest employers in the state. In other states, it's different, but the point is, he then asked us afterwards, after a couple of meetings with this group, will you guys help me put together a draft piece of legislation that we could present to our incoming incoming gubernatorial administration, the Governor Drew's administration. And we did that, and he's still trying to market that. In New Jersey, the lead person happened to be the executive director of the State Association of Community Colleges. They'd already started a pretty robust industry community college partnership. And I think our convening kind of goosed them along to really accelerate progress. They had a meeting in the first week in June. They invited my colleague Rachel to come and present. They bought copies of our book for their 200 participants. They're really trying to kind of move this, this, this agenda. My point is, we didn't do this, you know, that we, we see community college leaders as one audience, but at least equally important state and business leaders in, in other states. Um, I, I diverted from your, from, from your, your equity question, but let, let me come back to that. And I, I do think it's, it's, it's a really critical one. Um, I just think we, we need to kind of, as I mentioned earlier, we've got all these trends moving us away from you know, the, the romance with the four-year college for everybody. I never, I mean, I think what, what, what happened in a way was a really good idea, which is common high standards for everyone, morphed into a not-so-good idea. Therefore, everyone had to go on to a four-year college and university and live happily ever after. That's a nice kind of hope or fantasy, but it simply does not, you know, align with the realities of young people's lives and of what young people want. Um, to me, you know, a huge message from the early college high school movement is a lot of kids are saying at age 15, hey, I want to move on with my life. I don't want to be stuck, in, you know, with, with only with my peer group for the next, you know, X number of years. I want to move into more adult settings. And, and again, the example from, from the strongest systems like the school system outside the U.S. is yeah, kids really are ready to, to move into adulthood kinds of roles. They need a lot of support to do it. But, you know, if, we, if our interest ultimately is not simply helping kids make a transition from school to work, but from adolescence to adulthood, you know, one way to do that is help them take on more adult roles with a lot of, of, of support. So, you know, I think, I started to say, I've been working on two projects. Let me end by talking about the other project, which is the Boston Project, and you will recognize this. 
what I've been trying to do with others over the last couple of years is to put together a really ambitious college and career readiness program that has two pillars. The notion is that over the next four years, every young person in the Boston schools ought to have two kinds of opportunities. One is to get started on college, and the other is to have enough exposure to the world of work and careers, including paid internships and summer jobs, to make an informed choice at the end of high school of what he or she wants to do. If we could, in a place like Boston, which, by the way, as you might guess, has very poor, if you, if you ask your 25-year-old question how many people have a you know, have attained a four-year degree, and you use entering ninth graders as your baseline, it's maybe, maybe 20%. Uh, and that's not, not different from the other cities I've worked with. So, uh, you know, the equity question is, you know, for me, the equity means I've had exposure to these, both to the, the college world and the career world, and I'm in a position to, to make an informed choice about what pathway makes the most sense for me in my life. You know, next, if we could accomplish those two things and do those at scale, I think we'd be, we'd be taking a big step in the equity. Um, I, the reason I insist that it's got to be all students is the equity argument. Bob, that's a, a beautiful new equity vision. Um, we summarize it, as, summarize it as all kids experiencing success in what's next. So experiencing success in college experiencing success in a variety of workplaces so that they're able with strong guidance to make uh, good individual choices. Um, I, I think that's a vision we can get behind. Um, we've been talking to Bob Schwartz, an author of, uh, co-author of a great new book with Rachel Lipson, uh, America's Hidden Economic Engines, How Community Colleges Can Drive Shared Prosperity. Bob, it's been such a treat to Catch up. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason, at gettingsmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much.